Happy Tuesday. Uh, and I've got to give a little shout out to my daughter, Maisie Lynn. It is her fifth birthday today. What? So Happy birthday. Is- Maisie. She is excited and dad is a little sad because that means kindergarten's coming up next year. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, but yep. anyways, I want to give her a big happy birthday. She is quite the uh, um, energetic child and I want her to keep that spirit. So with and that. Sweetheart um, too. Yes. So thank you. But we have an incredible group today. I, I mean, this is going to be such a needed conversation we're going to have. We're really going to talk about some of the topics that get pushed to the side, how we really make sure we have equity, you know, uh, equality for all those aging, no matter where they are in the spectrum, no matter their orientation, their creed, any of that, we're going to really focus on how we can do better as a community to really start to do better for older adults, no matter where they are in the aging process. And You've got to stay with us while we dive deep into some of these more difficult conversations that are going to have awesome, awesome outcomes with great tools. We're going to give you a lot of great tools and resources today so that you can take action to improve yourself, improve others, and really have a positive impact on the community. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to the ever-fabulous Catherine Wells. Oh, today I'm fabulous. Today you're fabulous. Awesome. I love it. I'll take that. <laughs> we all need a little fabulous in our life every That's once right. in a while. I'm super excited to have Sarah, Carrie, and Stormy with us today, and I'm going to have them each introduce themselves and give a little bit of their background, but this show is about issues in senior care as it relates to LGBTQ. And you, people who know me know that I have a personal, um, I have a personal stake in this. I have two transgender children and a lesbian stepdaughter. And to me, it's just very important that people either with LGBTQ, minorities, mental health issues, anything at all that is not part of what many used to think of as the norm, that we actually are creating conversation around it because the only way shame happens is if it's silenced, if it's hidden, and these are things that we just really wanna get out there and not judge. And that's the other part of shame, silence, hidden, judged, I think those are the three. Um, So with that, let me start with Sarah because we've had Sarah Haggerty from Dr. Cog on one other time. So why don't we let you kick it off? Sarah, tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do at Dr. Cog. Yeah, hello everybody. My name is Sarah Haggerty. I am a long-term care ombudsman at the Area Agency on Aging at the Denver Regional Council of Governments. Wow, that's a mouthful. Every time I say it without making a mistake, I celebrate a little bit. So um, for those of you who don't know, ombudsmen are resident advocates for people who live in assisted living homes and nursing homes. And our role is really to be a person who's on the side of the resident when they're having challenges or facing issues with their rights. So in the era of COVID-19, this has been a very interesting job to have, um, a very challenging job. This has probably been the hardest year for residents and their care partners, maybe in the history of uh, in the history of long-term care in the United States. So um, there have been a lot of opportunities to help residents, their care partners and their families this year. It's always been dynamic. We've been navigating being totally virtual, um, but the ombudsman have not stopped uh, championing for the rights of long-term care residents. And it's just, it's been a good year, even though it's been a difficult year. 
Prior to my current role, I worked as a program coordinator at the Center on Colfax, which is the premier social services and recreational educational organization for LGBTQ people in the state of Colorado. And that was just an amazing experience and really gave me a big passion for LGBTQ older adults. Thank you, Sarah. And, you know, there's so much you talked about ombudsmen have not stopped. Um, all of all of you on the show right now are kind of hidden heroes, but I think ombudsmen sometimes are really hidden heroes. Mm -hmm. You don't know them, you don't see them unless you need them. <laughs> but man, when you need them, they're there and they're fighting yes. for you. Yes. So thank you for that, Sarah. Yeah. So Carrie, why don't you share a little bit of, uh, about yourself and your background with our audience? Sure, and thank you so much for having me. I'm Carrie Candrian. I am an assistant professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine. My, I'm a social scientist by training. I have a PhD in communication, and I teach communication um, in, our, in the Masters of Palliative Care, and primarily I, I, I do research, I conduct research, and my research focuses on the way communication affects healthcare, and specifically its impact on LGBT seniors. And That's a lot. To be here, I'm thrilled to have this conversation with, with this group. Yeah, yeah. And your background is so interesting and um, that it all came together this way and brought you to this point mm -hmm. is really cool. And I'm excited to have you share more about that with our audience. So Stormy, thank you so much for joining us. You're joining us from a community, Day Spring Villa yes. in Denver, Colorado, or I guess I'm not sure what city. That is that Inglewood, Centennial? We're in Denver, yeah. Denver, okay, yep. And um, Stormy, why don't you share a little bit about yourself and your background with the audience? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so my name is Stormy Faust-Maley. I am the Administrative Coordinator for Day Spring Villa. We're a part of Christian Living Communities. We're located here in Denver. I've been here for eight years. Our community is an assisted living that serves 70 residents. Um, before that, I have a master's degree in international political theory. So I always knew that I wanted to work in nonprofits. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to work with elders until I got my first job at um, a skilled nursing community and just really fell in love with it. So developed a real passion for older adults and, and just making sure that, you know, they're living good lives. Wow. That's so great. I And how cool. Political science prior to this. That's really interesting. And it's always fun to talk to people about how they got into senior care, how, how you know, but somehow when we start working with senior care, we tend to fall in love with seniors, right? So glad to have you. So thank you all three for joining us. Um, this kind of, th this particular episode kind of culminated from a conversation that I had with Sarah a few months ago. I saw an article in one of our local papers in Denver about um, a lesbian couple who one of them was dying and the partner, the one who was actually dying or in the hospital, and I'm sorry if I get this wrong, Sarah, you can correct me. Um, the one who was in the hospital didn't want her partner to express that they were actually partners or married because they didn't want to receive less than care. And that just broke my heart, devastated me, angered me. And Francis and I talked about it and immediately we said, we need to talk to Sarah. And that's kind of what started this whole 
conversation today. And um, so let's really, let's just dive into it. This is serious. This is a very serious conversation, but please know that we try to keep things a little bit light when we can, because this is also life and we need to be able to integrate things into who we are. Um, but really the, the reality is that the LGBTQ community faces disparities in inequity in healthcare, um, not only in healthcare, housing, employment, senior care, which is really ours, social services. So let, let's talk about it. Um, we wanna start putting a spotlight on these issues. So let's talk about what those inequities are and how you guys are seeing them, how they're showing up in senior care in particular and in other areas. I can jump in and first I do, this is a story about Esther and Kathy, right? You're referring to from the Colorado, she was actually a participant I interviewed about a year ago. And yeah. that was a real turning point um, for a lot of things, but, and I, she's okay with me using her name. And, um, but I think that really, that story is, is not, unfortunately not unique, but I think, and, but when I think about disparities with the LGBTQ population, I really like to think of them sort of falling into three main buckets, um, economics, family and social support, and the effects of a lifetime of stigma and discrimination. When you think about economics, when it comes to the LGBTQ population, they are an issue, but statistically they're, they're worse. One out of three older LGBTQ adults live at or below the poverty level. Um, and they haven't been able to legally get married until 2015. So many of them that were together often relied on single income, income again, adding more economic um, hardship and disparities. The second one is this the, of the family and social support. Um, a lot, I think it's two to three times, they are two to three times less likely to be married three to four times less likely to have kids, uh, the more likely to be estranged from family, even friends, which all this means they're aging with an incredibly thin network of support. And the, and the last one is really the, the effects of this lifetime of stigma and discrimination for particularly for the older LGBT community. They grew up when being LGBTQ was unthinkable. I mean, it was dangerous. And so to stay safe, they've really developed and honed this habit of silence around a fundamental part of, of who they are. And they even hide it from their healthcare providers. And so they've um, actually it was Harvard Medical Magazine published last year that, that the effects of this um, stigma and discrimination can take up to 12 years off their lives. And just, I just looked this morning, you, they've been, I mean, it's still in 21 states in 2021, you can legally be discriminated against because of your sexual orientation and, and gender identity. And so they're they're entering late life with just tremendous disparities. And then unfortunately it doesn't get much easier when they enter something like, like senior living. Right. Do, are you seeing at all a, a fear to move into any of these aging services uh, just because of, of stigma that, you know, is there. And then also, you know, obviously we, I do a lot of work with those living with dementia and, and they can regress to some of their older thought processes, right. Of, of how they were, the, they brought up. Is there any of that underlying concern? Like, Oh, if I go talk to this person, they might bring back, you know, some memories that are, are, are tr almost traumatic for for that person from years ago. 
I'll jump in. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would I would absolutely say that there is a huge fear in the LGBTQ community of accessing services, okay. specifically those provided by human service organizations like my own mm -hmm. or um, by uh, older adult and long term care communities. Uh, and not only is there a fear to access the services, there are actually barriers to admission for LGBTQ people. Um, mm. So there are certainly times when a person's sexual orientation or gender identity are wrongly taken into an account during the admissions process when people are being considered for, for um, potential residentship within uh, a long-term care community. So it's important to keep in mind that though that would be considered illegal discrimination, it still happens. Gotcha. Um, and there needs to be a lot of education with admissions and care partner teams about um, being non-discriminatory in their admission practices. And is that coming as part of like, you're talking about from the whole, basically that initial comprehensive assessment to room assignment to all of those things being engulfed in that, in that process? Yes, absolutely. And a good example of this is in the um, about two and a half years that I've been an ombudsman, I've heard the same story uh, from many different locations regarding mm -hmm. transgender individuals trying to access long-term care. Um, I've heard frequently from different sources about a situation where a transgender individual is seeking um, a room in a nursing home or an assisted living home, okay. but they, they may be a Medicaid transcipient, which okay. means that they uh, re rely on government funding to pay for their long-term care. Um, and Medicaid does not typically fund private rooms um, in many settings. And so there's this whole conundrum where the staff at the long-term care community um, feel as though it's not appropriate for a transgender individual to be rooming with a person who aligns with their gender identity um, because they're not understanding that a transgender person is the gender that they identify as. Gotcha. And, and so they're saying, well, this person really needs to be in a private room and Medicaid won't pay for it. So we're not going to admit this transgender resident. Is there any first off wow I, I see that's that is a lot to um uncover but is any of this affected by regulations like are we running into roadblocks because of how you know you know in colorado the department of health and the let's say the assisted living or the skilled nursing regulations are written are we running into issues because of regulatory issues or is this truly we need both a regulatory change and obviously an education as well too um, I want to let Stormy speak to this a little bit, but yeah, um, yeah. From, from my perspective, there's not really anything in the regulations, okay, that's, but no. that's a roadblock for transgender okay. or um, LGBTQ people accessing long-term care. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, so I'm not from the skilled side. Um, we're in an AL and all of our apartments are private. So even though we accept like 90% Medicaid, that's not an issue for our community. Mm, okay. um, but I, communities have a lot of leeway in who they're going to accept, right? And my understanding in Colorado is, it's, it's, I mean, it is. It's illegal to discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender, gender identity in Colorado. Right. But, you know, that requires people enforcing it and, you know, people making complaints and, and people saying, like, this is illegal discrimination. And if you're already just trying to find a skilled nursing community, you often don't have the ability to, to fight that fight. So... Mm. 
And Stormy, you're, you're assisted living. Are you also memory care? No, we're only assisted living. Okay. Okay. And I, I've, it just made me kind of think through in memory care, how that might play out because it, it could be difficult if somebody doesn't recognize that someone else has a certain gender identity, even though they're presenting a completely different way. There, there's some, we all know that sex is an issue in senior care. And um, so it just kind of presents some new, I, I could understand the challenges and there has to be better solutions than what exists today. And I think given what, what you just talked about, Stormy, Carrie and Stormy, it would be really great if you could share what the two of you are doing at Dayspring Villa. Of course. So um, I actually attended a SAGE training on marketing communities for LGBT elders at leading age in 2017. And I knew that we had some openly gay residents and um, at our community. So I said, I came back and I just asked them, like, what would you think about starting a gay straight alliance? Because that was what the suggestion was. And so they were like, yeah, yeah, we'd, we'd be into that. So we started and I kind of thought, you know, even if it's just me and a couple other people, you know, that's okay. And it's kind of modeled off the high school gay straight alliance where it's, you know, our first rule is that we don't assume anyone's sexuality or gender identity when they're in our group. If they want to share, like we make it a really safe place for them to do that. But we're like, we're not going to assume and we're not going to ask you if you don't feel comfortable sharing that. And so I thought we'd have a couple people and a whole bunch of people came and residents that I had no idea that I had known for five years that I had personally moved into our community. And I had no idea that they you know, needed this space because the other side of what Carrie was saying, which is that people feel that, you know, they will put off the search for senior living. Well, often what happens, in fact, Sage thinks that happens a majority of the time is that when people do see how to sit living who are part of the LGBTQ community, that they um, will go back into the closet because they're afraid that they'll receive an equitable treatment. And so even at our community, you know, I, I thought we don't discriminate in our community. People will feel safe. And what I learned that there is that there's an enormous gulf between I would never discriminate you, against you versus I want to include you. I want to welcome you and I want you to be part of the community. And for me, like that was the biggest thing I've learned in the last three and a half years we've been having this group that we might think we're being inclusive, but we're probably not. <laughs> What does that look like? Can you say a little more about that? Um, because I definitely do that. I, I say I don't I am not discriminatory against you at all or any anything. I'm very accepting. And so you really hit something when you said there's a big gap between saying I accept you exactly as you are and I'm including you. I'm being active in including you. Yeah, so we, you know, a CLC is very Eden alternative. A lot of our communities are Eden registered. That's something we hope to do at our community as well. And so the solution, of course, is to ask the residents, to ask the residents or the people closest to them. And so we asked them, we said, what would an inclusive community look like? And what they said was they would see inclusive marketing symbols before they even step into the community. When they're in the community, they would see inclusive symbols around the community they would be told that we respect your identity. They would have a place where they could gather and talk together. They would be told by the staff, we welcome you, we want you to be here. Um, and so that's what they're looking for. They, they, they don't, 
they don't want to rely on the idea that we know in our hearts that we won't discriminate against you, but we're not telling you that. That's not enough after the lifetime of discrimination many of them have faced to trust us. To trust us, we have to show them like we are actively trying to make you a part of our community. So Stormy, it sounds like we need to be action-based in what we're doing, not just word-based. A lot of us are very good at maybe putting it out there from a verbal standpoint. We don't do this. We don't do that. But it really comes down to taking that positive action to, to, to make the changes, but also then go through and show what we're doing, right? Is that a good maybe way to surmise it is that we need to be action-based in how we're truly doing these things? I think action is a big part of it. Okay. Um, it, but I think little things matter to our residents. So um, like sometimes I'll wear like a flag pin, like a, a rainbow flag pin or something like that. And just something small like that, you know, and it's not just for our residents. I mean, it's our team members as well who are part of the LGBT community, but also family members. We had a wonderful family who moved into our community and one of the things, um, so it was a lesbian couple who was looking for one of their moms. And they were just looking around and saying like, oh, look, that person has a human rights, you know, campaign symbol on their door. And look, I'm seeing your flyer for your LGBT plus friends group. That's not huge. That's not a huge action. It's a small thing, but it's small things that people who are in the know are looking for. So. Hmm. And another big part of what um, Sturm and I are doing is also realizing that inside these communities exist these, these very rigid cultures that have existed forever and continue to sort of take on a life of their own. And a lot of times these cultures are very tolerant to inequality. And so that's why coming back to the action too, that, and I think that if people say they're accepting, unless you actively call people in and create space and show that it's safe. I mean, if Lambda Legal has said 75% of older LGBT adults go right back into the closet, like Stormy said, when they enter these communities. And so if you have spent your whole life being fearful and feeling unsafe, you look for symbols to think that it's okay that someone has a pin or there's a sticker on the door and then the follow through because once you're in there for a lot of LGBT seniors, you don't have a lot of family, you don't have a lot of support. And so the staff really does become your family and also the resident. And so not stopping there, but continuing to really change this rigid culture so that people can give people space. They're not forcing people to respond in a way that really makes them fit these assumptions that everyone is married, that everyone has kids. And I think those things become so innocent and in, in why the communication becomes so important because our language is a reflection of our attitudes and beliefs yeah. that affect people positively and negative. And so I think people sometimes underestimate how powerful language is for both maintaining these cultures and also disrupting these cultures to give people the option to be and feel differently and not feel they have to be forced from the moment they fill out an admission form and then follow through everyone that comes into your room. So it's even simple as how we're even wording or documenting in the assessment. So it goes back to even the words we're putting on the paper, spouse or other things that are commonly used right in, in an assessment. Uh, and it's even the verbiage of the questions being asked or how they're asked. Right. And yeah, that's powerful right there alone is being mindful of what's on a piece of paper and that you're presenting. We don't ask, I know Sarah and Stormy, I don't think we routinely collect sexual orientation, gender identity information, which then means you're not really asking, or if you're only asking about relationship status and giving people the option to say married or not. Right. 
you lose, coming back to Esther and Kathy, you lose someone who's been with the love of their life for 45 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Go ahead, Sarah. Oh, I was just going to say, I totally agree with you, Carrie, um, in, in terms of, you know, losing those people because you're not even realizing that they're coming into your community. So one of the biggest things that I'll hear from providers when I'm talking with them about project visibility is that, well, there's nobody really in our community that fits that bill. And, you know, statistically, up to 10% of the population, give or take, is LGBTQ identified, which means you're going to have caregivers, you're going to have staff people, administrative staff, you're going to have janitors who are LGBTQ, which means you're going to have residents who are LGBTQ, whether you know it or not. And so what you can do as a community is make sure that those folks feel affirmed and heard, and that individuality and the real whole person with all their hopes and dreams and goals for the future is honored and acknowledged. Um, I think that one of the fatal flaws of long-term care communities is that um, many of us view them as the final, the final place you'll go at the end of your life. And we forget a, that the, there's a lot of life left to live in the years that a person will spend in the long-term care community. We're not there to just manage their needs. We're there to help support the whole person. And until we recognize that a person's um, sexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, religion are all integral parts of who a person is, then we're, we're not gonna do right by our residents. So incorporating the whole person into the care plan and into the assessment is so important. And you said something in that, Sarah, you said, we're not there just to manage their care. And I think that that is something that we need to break that stigma of senior care. And we need to also disrupt senior care. Because there is a lot of that that is true today because it's always been that way, um, always been that way kind of thinking. And the CEO of Stormy's organization, the Christian Living Communities, wrote a book called Disrupting the Status Quo of Senior Care. And <coughs> senior living, sorry. And her name is Jill Vitali Awesome. If you don't know her, she's awesome. <laughs> Full of vitality. Um, and I hope you're watching, Jill. Um, but I, you know, you think about just the whole person perspective, and that's hard enough for some communities to do, regardless of this issue. Just in general, to have enough staff to be able to take care of a whole person, to really not give just task-oriented care, but actually truly person or purpose or relationship-centered care, which is what we're we're kind of moving towards as the Mavericks, talking about relationship-centered care. It's the person. Um, and their relationship with you and your relationship with them and their relationship to the world. So you, you also mentioned project visibility and the things that Stormy was talking about and Carrie was talking about are images, seeing images of um, maybe a pride flag or the rainbow or images of people who look like you, mm -hmm. right? A uh, mm -hmm. transgender person or um, two women holding hands or kissing or whatever, as part of the brochures and things like that. And I'm really curious how that is playing out. Is that something that you're, you've implemented, Stormy, at your community? Do you, have you incorporated those images in? And what kind of response have you gotten? 
So in terms of marketing, that's not somewhere that's not somewhere that we've gone yet. Um, you know, CLC is working not just on this issue for DEI, but like the wider, the wider you know issue of DEI, like really including everyone. So that's team members. That's you know, like you were saying, it's like the administrative staff. It's everybody. Like it's. Um, oh, sorry, like Sarah was saying, um, our residents, and so. Um, we are forming a DEI committee that we're hoping to have in place by the end of the year. So we've got like a steering group going right now to set it up. Eventually, I think that we hope that will involve residents and care partners and people at all levels of our organization. And I think that this is something that we will be addressing. And so, um, yeah, I think it's going to be really important. For our listeners, can you uh, just spell out what the acronym is that you use? Sorry. Um, so that they know. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, diversity, yeah. equity, and inclusion. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I, I just want to make it sorry, just in case. Uh, so everybody catch that. It's diverse, diversity, equity, and inclusive inclusion. Excuse me. Inclusion. Yeah. And I would say we're even seeing that after the George Floyd. Um, well, we're dealing with that right now, but we're seeing that after the Black Lives Matter movement that really, really was at its height several months ago. We're now seeing ads on TV with people of color. We're seeing more people of color shows. We're seeing that these are the things that we need to get out there is that this is just life. This isn't, I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna share this one story. So when I was, when my son first came out as transgender, I struggled a lot. I went to a PFLAG meeting to get support. And I wanna ask about support here in just a minute um, for the communities. But at that PFLAG meeting, there was a young transgender person there. And I asked that person, what do you want to know? What do you want to see from us adults, us older people? Like, how do you want us to see and, and behave and um, you know think about this? And that person said, I want it to be a non-issue. <laughs> mm. I'm a human being. And it hit me like that. Like, why is this an issue? Why? This is a story that's that's going through my head that it's an issue. And it is an issue because of our society. So it's an issue we need to deal with. And that's what we're wanting to do here on this show. Um, but I, I really am curious about support systems for people because transgender, LGBTQ or not, you move into senior care you lose a lot of your support systems, your friends, your your home, your the things that are your creature comforts. How are you managing that? Um, and this is a question for any one of you to respond. What are some of the support systems out there? I think for our community, our LGBT plus friends group has been really impactful. Um, and I just want to Ish, why I say LGBT instead of LGBTQ is that was a conscious choice from our elders um, who um, don't, they don't have good connotations for the, the Q, which often stands for queer. Uh -huh. um, it was a thing that, you know, people were like, people used to yell that at me, like out car windows. I don't want to use that. So In a mean way. It was not positive. No, it was a discrimination, you know, thing. So um, they, they, that's why we say LGBT. Just want to clear that up um, because... I prefer to use the LGBTQ, but I want to respect our elders' choice on that. Um, what they have really craved, and this is how I actually met Sarah when she was at the center, what they have, just the whole time, they want to reach out to the wider community. A lot of LGBTQ people, it's found families because, you know, if your family kind of like disowned you or didn't support you the way that you needed, you went out and you found other people who could fill that role and who understood and accepted you. So that they still want that. So 
they've really found value from being together at our community in our, you know, our monthly meetings. And we've expanded out next door to an independent living community who also comes over and joins us for our group. And that's been really great. But they were like, we want to get to the center. You know, we, we want to go out and we want to meet other people. We want to connect in these other ways. And that's something that they are still wanting to do. And so one of the things that, you know, we also want to do is just bring together LGBT folks from our sister communities together with our residents and just expand that sense of community. It, it's so important. That's fantastic. Um, one, in terms of support, one thing, there are two things and one of them really led out of the story with um, Esther and Kathy when I interviewed, when I interviewed Esther about a year ago. But um, when you think about sort of support generally, there's not a lot, not probably not surprisingly for the LGBT um, older adult community, particularly when it comes to grief, bereavement, or even dementia. Um, we just finished a study interviewing caregivers, caring for people who are living with um, dementia or related dementias. And there's just a couple of Alzheimer's Association that have specific LGBT groups, but majority of them do not. I know that there, there have been recent talks, I think with the center and our local chapter here. So they don't have consistent access to, and, and many of the participants describe, so you're not only coming out as being gay or lesbian or transgender, you're also then coming out with dementia. So it's like this triple coming out that becomes almost, like the burden is just too much for so many. Um, of the patients and, and the caregivers. And then, so what we've recently created, less about dementia, but it's still for anyone, because when you, even with hospices, they often have an eligibility for the grief groups anyway. So I know like some of the local ones, you have to have lost a spouse um, within mm -hmm. three months or even six months, which as we know, grief can be the same as it is three months versus three years. It, it's different for everybody. And a lot of the hospices don't have specific LGBT groups. And, and we know that it is, is important for, if you're gonna get, get support, you need to be able to be open about who you are and who you've lost. And so Esther, the woman I interviewed who lost her wife, Kathy, to this rare form of leukemia and was not acknowledged when Kathy died, no one said anything to Esther, not a word. So she's experienced very complicated and, and what we know is disenfranchised grief when, when a loss can't be acknowledged. And so um, I secured just a little bit of funding and we now have six participants for a, grief, a, a lesbian grief group locally that we're gonna expand because you know, that's, I think that we don't even, the, the next step too, not just caring for someone living with a disease. And then when you lose someone, there's really nowhere to go. And Esther was, I mean, living in a pretty large city and couldn't find a support group. And we have got, I mean. And to be invisible. We have yeah. to be So invisible in the process so of someone that you have shared your life with and loved. And uh, that's just so heartbreaking to me. And it makes me yeah. angry. I really, I, I was talking to Francis the, the other day about what do I do with all this anger that I'm, I begin to experience the more I uncover and the more I see in senior care, some of the things that happen now, not all of it, there's beautiful things that are happening, beautiful, and I don't wanna say that, but there's there's some underlying things like, like Esther not being recognized at all, just is heartbreaking and angering to the point that I really, 
I want to do whatever we can do to make changes. And I know that you guys have some some things in play. Sarah, I'd love to. And I want to I want to get to a couple comments before we get to Sarah. And, Sorry, and yes. All right. So, yeah. uh, quick one here from Jenny. She was really appreciative, Kathy, of your story and sharing. And then this is from <laughs> from Cheryl as well too. Um, migration for home and family is just part of our life. So I think that says a lot right there mm -hmm. is, is, is I think, um, care what you said about that finding a family basically, right. Is, mm -hmm. um, or Sarah said that, I'm sorry, I can't remember which one of you, but, um, yeah. the um, found but family, right. Found family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that goes, it's really critical to go into then even how we as providers are, are addressing that initial situation, right? Of not making assumptions, not assuming there's a spouse or kids or whatever it is really going in to truly understand that person, who they are as who they are, not these, you know, essentially biased thought processes of, Oh, there's, they're married, there's kids or whatever that may be that we go into it ahead of time. So I think that's really important. And, and we have a few things to talk about along those lines. One of them is what Sarah is doing with Project Visibility. Do you want to share more about that? Yes, thanks. Um, so Project Visibility is a program that was originally created by the Area Agency on Aging in Boulder County. Dr. Cog is a train the trainer partner with Boulder County's Project Visibility. And so um, in the past few months, I've been uh, spearheading a work group at Dr. Cog where we are um, updating our training materials. We just worked with Boulder County's uh, LGBTQ plus program specialist, Michael Chifolo, to get about 15 people in the region trained to be trainers for project visibility. And um, our hope is to get our contractors that contract with the Area Agency on Aging to provide services trained under project visibility, um, and also to provide training for long-term care communities and um, to really make this uh, a forefront issue for us. So um, Project Visibility is all about representation for the LGBTQ older adult community. Um, it's about making sure that providers are uh, culturally competent in terms of terms, definitions, and um, a brief overview of the history of LGBT discrimination in the United States, um, and to help create a really person-centered culture that encourages people not to make assumptions, to ask open-ended questions, and to embrace diversity and individuality as being a great strength to a community, um, not something that we want to sweep under the rug and pretend doesn't exist. Sarah, what do you, are you running into just, uh, I always like to ask this, any roadblocks when it comes to trying to get this education training materials out at all? I, I one of the biggest roadblocks that I think I've seen with this is just staff in homes are really strapped on time already. Um, mm. They express interest in having this training. They express interest in creating a more inclusive community. But when it ultimately comes down to the brass tacks of scheduling 90 minutes for all 30 of their caregivers to come in and do a training or to get on their computers and do it and do a training and have a really meaningful conversation, mm. it can be hard to find that 
block of time. Um, so part of what I want to do is do a, a live open session on Zoom for up mm. to 100 participants that people who have the av availability can join in on. And then, um, you know, if that takes off, kind of offer that on an ongoing basis and then so possibly make a recording. Jenny has a good question here. And Sarah, I want, I want to make sure you address this is where can you find project visibility trainings for professionals? Well, you can certainly contact me. Um, I am providing them and I have a team of trained staff who can also provide the training. So my uh, contact information is shaggerty, H-A-G-G-E-R-T-Y at drcog.org. The best way to reach me is just to send me an email and, um, and then I would gladly set something up with you. Uh, the trainings can range from one to three hours based on your needs and they are free of cost. So I just want to make sure I'm going to put this up there. Is that, did I spell it right? That's correct. Okay, cool. All right. Just want we'll, to make sure. We'll make sure they're in the notes too for people. Yeah, and I, I really want people to hear what Sarah finished with. They are free of charge. Yes. Right? Free of charge. Yes. Please take advantage of this. The only way we're going to change is if we start to put a spotlight on some of these issues and, and take a, take the time, make it a priority to put at least some of your people through it. If you can't get all 30 caregivers or 60 caregivers, take your top management and please ask them. I, I'm, I'm asking, please put someone in your organization through this and even allow them then to share their experience if that's all you can do because this is so important. We can't make change without understanding the issue. And I promise that this will not, this will have an impact on all of your residents. I mean, this is, this will have a positive impact on everyone. So I think that's really important is that this will probably open your eyes up, open your staffs, open your residents, give better value back to your residents and to your staff. Yeah. So um, Carrie, what are some of the things that you see happening that you, you would like to highlight right now for our audience in this area? Terminology, um, programs, anything at all? Um, I think, I, I mean, I know that the, like, I think the last time that the American, the National Academy of Medicine, which used to be the Institute of Medicine, they are revamping their guidelines. I think the last time they did this was 1984, something crazy. What? They said the, the key thing, which I'm not sure if any of them are listening, but if they do is to, 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 to remember that, to remember everyone when they redo these guidelines, because I don't think, I doubt LGBT appeared anywhere on those 500 pages in 1984. And I worry they're not gonna appear too many times this round, because I think that COVID has ha has really put a spotlight on um, how bad things have been and can be in, in a lot of senior living. But the, the thing though that for LGBT, the LGBT community is a lot of these things existed before. I mean, isolation, the loneliness, the abuse, um, the discrimination and, it's almost like I read an article, you know, now that we're vaccinated, the board games began, we can go back, but we still haven't addressed the culture of, 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 of inequality that needs to be at the forefront of any for, sort of reform. And so I really hope who's ever really having these meetings and are bringing the people that need to be there, actual community members who are living in these communities to be at that table and to be shaping the recommendations and the policies because 
I do, I mean, as we know, legislation is fundamental. And as we also see that just in Colorado, we have strong legislation. A transgender woman can be denied senior housing 65 times. That was, it was 65 times in 2021. And so I do think that we can't legislate the way people think and feel, but we can really give people a new vocabulary and a new way of talking, which I really believe can also change culture to, to come at this problem from every possible angle because it needs to be top to bottom, left to right reform. Yeah, I would really piggyback on that and say, I don't think or hope we go back the way they were before COVID. I really hope we learn and improve upon what we've what COVID has highlighted uh, about the challenges, the inequities, the the mind blowing things that we assumed were okay that we were doing before. I really hope we push ourselves to do more, to do better, to to think and act differently, because we have learned so much in what fourteen months, fifteen months now, um, and I really challenge the leaders of of the industry and the thought leaders to. Take a step back and push yourself out of your comfort zone. It's okay to be uncomfortable right now. We're, we're, we're having tough discussions, but don't run and shy from it. Take it head on and acknowledge your own, your own fears, your own concerns, because these aren't easy topics, but they must be done in order for us to get better and also to provide a better level of care. Let's, um, let's go back to what Carrie said. I want to, make sure this gets said again, because Carrie, this is a true story, correct? That a transgender woman oh, yeah, that, yeah. was denied how many times? 65, right, Stormy and Sarah? 65? Yeah. 65 yeah. times. And this person simply wanted help. That is unacceptable. If we allow things like that to happen in our world, we, we absolutely have to make change. That is completely unacceptable. I have many people who come to me, usually of the younger age, who say, would you talk to my mom? Would you talk to my dad? Would you share your story? And I say, always, please, I'll share my story. I can't change other people's opinions. That's not for me to do anyway. It is for me to just share my story and my journey and help them understand that they're not alone and that it's okay to feel what they're feeling. But part of that process to me says, as we're talking about this, I of course worry about my own kids as they get older. Mm -hmm. And the statistics carry that you went through in the beginning, dismal, yeah. dismal, dismal, dismal. Let's change the trajectory of those. Mm -hmm. But then I think about parents, other parents who are my age, who are now learning that their kids are mm -hmm. LGBTQ and they're, you know, that. We need to worry about it, whether it's for us or someone that we're learning about in our life or someone that we know or a relative or a friend. We all, this is a problem for everybody. So really important, 65 times to be turned down is completely unacceptable. Not okay, not okay. So <laughs> that's Kathy on her soapbox. Um, all right, so where um, do we there. <laughs> well, Francis, if you don't mind me interjecting, no, I please. You, you said something great about how we shouldn't go back to the way things were um, before COVID-19. And it makes me think about um, how the people, the residents who did the best during the isolation during COVID-19 were the people who still had loved ones, family members, relatives, friends, 
on the outside, reaching out, making contact mm. with them, advocating on their behalf. Um, and I can only imagine that people without a support system really suffered um, far greater than the people who did have a support system. So when yeah. you think about LGBTQ people who are less likely to have family, less likely to have children, more likely to have lived a life more in isolation than others, how many of those folks suffered in long-term care? So making sure that we're we're thinking about um, how do we help somebody establish support folks? How can our care partner teams be support folks for the unbefriended instead of just um, people who are there to provide task-based care? How, we, how can we provide relationship-based care that honors um, and dignifies residents and provides them with support when they need it most? Um, yeah. This this all makes me think about an experience that I had, um, was fortunate to have had early on in my time as being an ombudsman, uh, where I um, had the pleasure of helping to advocate for a younger, openly LGBTQ person living in a nursing home. And um, it was a real learning experience for me because... This resident was reporting issues with care that really weren't particularly common in this home. And it, it was all about not um, feeling like sh they were being treated fairly or well by the caregivers, like that there was some kind of dignity and respect issue. There were communication barriers. And um, so I did what my training told me to do. I helped call a care conference with the resident and the care team and, and talked about that and things got better. But I think I missed something there because this resident was openly LGBTQ and they had, you know, postings all over their rooms about so all over their room about social justice, about um, about LGBTQ issues and trans rights or human rights. And, um, you know, I have to wonder if at a certain point in time, the caregivers implicit biases or their feelings mm. about the LGBTQ community were actually the underlying cause for some of the communication issues and the care issues. Um, and had, you know, I had that experience earlier, maybe I would have um, approached that differently and asked questions about, do you think this could possibly be impacting the problem um, that you're having? Hmm. And, uh, you know, getting to the root of it rather than just going straight into clinical, let's, let's fix the care team problems that right. you're having. Getting um, into the why, yeah getting into the why and then seeing if there's some other intervention that I could have offered or um, some training for, yeah. for those staff members. So really just something to think about and kind of my call to action for people is to uh, examine your attitudes, examine how you feel about groups of people, learn about um, discrimination, whether it's against LGBTQ people or um, minority races and ethnicities, minority religions, and then take time to learn from those individuals, uh, learn from representatives of those communities, and do better um, so that we can make the world a better place. I like it. I like it too. That's very well said, Sarah, um, and very, very Love the call to action. Love it. I really do. And I'm going to go back to something I think it's really important here is we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. These conversations are not going to be easy. The change isn't going to be easy, but we have to acknowledge the only way to get better and to grow and to make the world a better place is to be comfortable unco being uncomfortable as we 
challenge ourselves to acknowledge our own shortcomings and it's okay. And, you know, we're not going to be perfect on day one. And uh, yeah. So being patient, we're not all perfect. The goal is to continually learn and grow. And let's be clear, the people who have been discriminated against, whether it's people of color, whether it's um, LGBTQ, any area at all, they are uncomfortable a whole lot more than we are. And we've got to, we've got to get that. We've got to get that, really understand that and make some change. So Sarah, thank you for that. Story me, what would you ask our audience to do? What kind of action would you want people to take after listening to this? I would say that you, yeah, I think I agree with so much of what's been said. And so one of the things is just that you don't know who needs this, you know, mm. because, because most of the people who need it aren't willing to trouble you because they don't trust you. So yeah, I've heard that from other professionals like, well, I mean, that's great for your community, but our community doesn't have any LGBT people. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, yeah, it does. Like, yes, it does. I, I will promise you that you do and they don't trust you. Mm-hmm. And I learned that because that happened to me, like, because we had a lot of LGBTQ residents who didn't trust me and didn't trust us. Mm. They're there. And, and one thing that Francis said that I think is just so smart is he said, this will benefit all your residents. And that is true because maybe your residents not LGBT, but you don't know that their family members aren't. You don't know that their friends aren't, that their neighbors aren't. You don't know that, you know, their parents or their uncles or their aunts weren't. So you don't know who they love and who they value unless you ask. And we're not asking right now. And so I do think that it will positively impact your whole community. It's going to make you a more desirable employer for LGBT people or people who love LGBT people. So um, I would just say that like, and living, I mean, I work in a community. I've been here the whole time for COVID and it is 100% true that we are busy, right? We're so busy with infection control and PPE and trying to keep our residents spirits up when they have been denied so many of the things that they had before. but you pay attention to what you value. So if that's where leadership, that's where the role of leadership comes in. So wise leadership, just like Eden says, there's there's no substitute for wise leadership. It's the lifeblood of any organization. And so you have to be willing, there are free resources like Project Visibility. There's ones you can pay for like Sage Care, which is what we will be offering our um, communities next year hmm. uh, in Colorado. Cool. Um, so there's there's resources you have to care about it you have to be willing because your care partners have time for what you for what you what you make clear is important to your organization so if there's no one at the top who's doing that then um, then it's not going to work and nothing's going to change and then your elders will still be living in the closet and still not being known and still not getting the care they need and so you have to you have to care about it you have to make it a priority um, and my guess is if you most senior living communities if you look at your if you look at your values, this probably fits in there. So like CLC, you know, one of our values is that we care about each other. You can't care about people unless you are willing to include them, unless you're willing to hire and bring in people who are diverse and celebrate all of their identities, which is something that our residents said. They they don't want to just be your gay resident. They want to be your resident who loves to fly kites and had this job that they really love that they were good at and is a good neighbor and went to church and is gay. Like they want to be respected for all their identities. And you just, you you have to make that a priority. 
Well said. And the other thing that you said throughout the conversation today, Stormy, was it's in the little things. Mm -hmm. It's in the, just mm -hmm. the little things. Take one small action today, whether it is and every day, whether it's in terminology, whether it's in, you know, looking at your own implicit biases that Sarah mm -hmm. was talking about, whether it's just simply putting a, a flag out or, you know, whatever it is, little tiny things can make just a really big impact. Stormy, thank you for everything that you're doing there. Really, really wonderful. And I applaud you. Um, Carrie, what action would you want our audience to take? Um, one thing I, I will get to the action, which is related to this, but I did when Sarah brought up COVID, we actually have no idea the impact COVID is having, has had on the LGBT population because we have no data. We don't routinely collect data. Mm. It means we have no idea the impact. Data meaning like race and ethnicity, we don't routinely collect sexual orientation, generating deadly information anywhere routinely. So we really, unfortunately, have no idea to even evaluate outcomes of, among major illnesses, diseases, and, and pandemics. Um, <clears throat> I think coming back to little things too, I think thinking about these questions, I'm going to come back to married and, and kids that are really so scripted. Um, which give, makes people feel like they are they get they give them cues to respond in a certain way. Right. Or thinking about what is the information we even need, we even want to know, and we, and we need. I mean, asking people if they're married or if they have kids doesn't give care professionals really the information that they need. So I've always the community has given me the solution. I mean, who has been the biggest support in your life? And instead of and then who do you consider family? I mean that. One, it opens up the options to give people choices, and then it actually gives you the information that people need. I mean, who who matters to them? What matters to them? Who do they need to have in the room when anyone talks about their care? So thinking of, of just the common things you say and thinking about how you can crack them open to give people space. Because I think from all the seniors I've worked with, they're not asking for, for much. And you know, they just want to be able to talk openly. They want to be heard without prejudice. And all we have to do is, is make some subtle changes and give them space and you can feel trusted. And I really think it's, it's beyond time we do this. And these are completely feasible changes we all need to start doing so that they can age and live and thrive as everybody else can. Agreed. It's a beautiful place to end. There's so much we could talk about, but thank you all for your time. Um, it really powerful subject. And please, everyone who's listening, know that, that we know that everyone in senior care is working really, really hard. Everyone is doing the very best that they can do. And our request is, is purely just to take this on and think about it. Just put it in your head and think about it and take action where you can. Yeah. Francis? Uh, um, no, I just, uh, we unpacked a lot today. And like I said, I, I'm going to go back to the same thing is it's okay for this to take some time, but what it cannot take is turning away from it, that we have to take this head on. And it's the, not only is it the right thing to do, but it's going to help everybody around us. I love that. And thank so, you all for joining yeah, us. Thank you so much for sharing this. Really appreciate it. It's yeah, it's fantastic. So I really appreciate all the work that you three are doing and all your teams. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank, thank you. to you. Listeners. We appreciate you. We know this is a tough subject. So thank you. Mm -hmm. And 
everyone. We'll see you on Friday. We actually have a special show coming up on our collaboration cohort this Friday. So join us then if you can. And in the meantime, this will this recording of this episode will be on our website and our, on our Facebook page. Please check it out, share it with others. We appreciate it. Thank you, everyone.